Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Few would argue that the multi-billion dollar fitness industry is driven by millions of American women who regularly run, box, climb, swim, cycle, or otherwise sweat their way to good health and strength. But most of us would be surprised to know that daily exercise for women was a major cultural shift in the 20th century, or that it took the persistence of several pioneering women to make it happen. Author Danielle Friedman shares their stories in her book, Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Danielle Friedman is an award-winning journalist whose writing has appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, The Cut, Vogue, Health, and Time. She was also a senior editor for the NBC News, Digital, and The Daily Beast. And author Danielle Friedman joins me now from New York City. Welcome to Under the Radar, Danielle. Hi, it's great to be here. Well, I am delighted to have you. Let's Get Physical is a wonderful history. So much I did not know. It's one of those, it's a page turner in a different way. (laughs) In that (laughs) I I kept learning things as I went along. Uh, Let's set the table for this. You're going through pretty much seven decades of history. What inspired you to write the story to begin with? Yeah, so I am a a lifelong runner and exercise enthusiast. I'm also a women's health journalist and and feminist journalist, but it really wasn't until this project that I kind of fused those personal and professional interests. Um, I like to say that the story of the book began in a bar workout class about five years ago. Um, It was my first experience taking bar classes, and I became really intrigued by the larger bar subculture. I did a little digging and I discovered that bar was actually invented by a woman named Lottie Burke, who was this very larger than life, complicated, uh, almost cinematic figure of the swinging 60s in London. And she had invented bar in part to help women improve their sex lives um, in addition to becoming strong. So the more I learned about Lottie, the more curious I became about the other, you know, the larger history of women's fitness. And I, and I discovered that in almost every movement, there is this kind of Lottie Burke-like or Forrest Gump-like figure, pioneer, who fought for women's right to move. And I, I just sort of immediately saw that there was a story here that, that needed to be told. And one of the things that is interesting that comes through so clearly in your book is that without these kinds of very strong personalities and determined uh, characters like the Lottie Burks of the world, I don't know if there would have been a cultural shift because these women were, even in their own small way, when they started off or however they did their work, they were pioneers, they were evangelists, and they just had to keep pushing this message that women could be strong. Please explain that 
it seems so obvious now, but at the time, you know, you weren't supposed to sweat if you were a woman. That was uncouth. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And 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 also to your point, you know, women's fitness is so ubiquitous today. I think especially among younger women, there's this perception that it just kind of sprung into being. Um, when actually, as you said, you know, there it 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 is the result of decades and generations of of women fighting for um, opportunities and access to move our bodies. So um, the book begins in the 1950s, which was a real low point for for movement um, in this country for men and women, but for women, it carried. Um, the, the idea that a woman would, you know, adopt a daily exercise routine that that made her sweat and that allowed her to become strong was really subversive. As you said, you know, sweat was unladylike and the just the women's pursuit of physical strength was seen as really threatening. Um, and so sort of as a, partly as a result of this and also helping to fuel it, um, lots of myths about what vigorous exercise would do to women's bodies um, started to emerge from the fact that strenuous exercise could, or the belief that I should say, make a woman's uterus fall out to um, a related belief that it could, you know, quote, turn her into a man, make her grow a mustache or develop uh, un unladylike muscle. And yeah, that period was such it was an era of very strictly enforced gender norms when masculinity was equated with strength and femininity largely with weakness and submission. And so women's lack of, of movement was, was sort of an outgrowth of that. Well, let's talk about Bonnie Pruden, who is early on in your book and who, in fact, was early on in this movement. And she was, talk about being a solo voice at the time. Mm -hmm. People thought she was just downright weird. Who was she <laughs> and, and what was the impact that she made? Yes, um, I i am so grateful that I had the opportunity to tell Bonnie's story and attempt to bring her to life. She is this amazing pioneer who has really been largely overlooked by history and, and forgotten. Um, Bonnie was many things. She was a she was a champion skier and mountain climber. She was a Broadway dancer. Um, and then in the 1940s and 50s, she became basically a celebrity advocate for for fitness and for men, women, and children adopting a daily exercise routine. Um, there's a lot that I could say about her work with children. She is partly responsible for the creation of the, the presidential physical fitness test that many of us <laughs> remember um, with mixed feelings having to take in PE class. Um, but but in the context of my book, I was really interested in exploring how she very savvily began to sell exercise to um, to a skeptical public. Exercise for women. Um, she she really encouraged women to to cultivate muscle, to do push ups, um, but she also sold it as a beauty tool. And one of her many catchphrases was. Um, under every curve, there's a muscle, no muscle, no curve, which is like, if you think about that for a second, I don't know if that was fully um, <laughs> how legit it was, but, but, but people seem to listen. 
Um, she wrote a best-selling book called How to How to Keep Slender and Fit After 30. And she had a regular column in Sports Illustrated. She actually appeared on the cover of, of a 1957 issue of Sports Illustrated. Um, but for for a really for quite a while, she was, if not a lone voice advocating evangelizing for fitness, she was one of a very few. She was fighting an uphill battle for a while. So I found it so interesting that as you go along, beautifully, by the way, transitioning us from point to point in this journey of women's fitness, we obviously have to get to some of the stars because that is what pushed it open. Uh, Mm -hmm. to a large degree, to many more of us or many more people to pay attention to this. And one of the biggest stars, of course, was Jane Fonda. Yes, that Jane Fonda, the actress and the activist, has a huge career as a workout fitness personality, and she did the stuff herself as well. First, before you talk about Jane Fonda's impact, let's take a listen to a clip from the 1982 VHS tape, Jane Fonda's workout. <laughs> Love it. Come up. Get on your hands and knees. Weight evenly distributed on your hands. These are called Rover's Revenge. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight again. One. And that was Jane doing the exercises. She had some people behind her who were exercise <laughs> people, but she was doing it. Um, this was huge, Danielle. Yes. Yes. Another fitness pioneer who I interviewed said that he likes to think of the fitness industry as BJ and AJ before Jane and (laughs) after Jane, (laughs) because while they're there, you know, she was, of course, standing on former pioneers shoulders. She really she kind of broke the industry wide open and revolutionized it. I would say her her biggest impact came from her VHS tapes and her the way in which she exported women's fitness to the masses through home fitness. Um, her story is so fascinating and and complex. Um, it's hard to know exactly. You know, I I could talk about her for hours, but um, she opened a small fitness studio in Beverly Hills in 1979, and she opened it exclusively to fund her then husband Tom Hayden's uh, political ambitions and campaign. And the workout was so popular, it led to a a best selling book in 1981. And then um, the, the actually really interesting thing about her VHS is that when she was first approached about making a tape, she said no, because at the time, nobody she knew owned a VCR. Nobody purchased home videos. And she eventually was convinced. And she's now credited not only with launching the home workout industry, but with launching the home video and home entertainment industry writ large. Um because what what people found there there were you know women were really incentivized to do her workout they they wanted to see what it was all about but they found that in order to benefit from it they had to own it and so it, it went on to become one of the best selling home videos of all time sorry i'm speaking about her original 1982 yes. workout mm-hmm. she made she made many more after that um and yeah it sold something like 17 million copies so that's the that's the short version of Jane's fitness and I want to point st- out that's legacy. Be- that's before Twitter and Facebook. That that's yes. that was that's word of mouth and 
all of that, you know, that's how many she sold at that point. That's amazing. Viral, Yeah, <laughs> viral before viral was a thing. <laughs> exactly. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Danielle Friedman, author of Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. Now, behind Jane Fonda as she did her exercises was a black woman, which is really unusual at this point in this journey of fitness, as you've made clear in your book. I'd love you to read an excerpt from your book, starting on page 31, because you were quite clear about the movement was originally focused and still to some large degree focused on, as you put it, upper middle class white women, really. Yes. From the start, however... Fitness left huge swaths of the population behind. Exercise promotion efforts were rarely directed toward those who had yet to benefit from the nation's culture of abundance, writes Shelley McKenzie. Exercise was imagined to be a replacement for the physical activity that had been lost to sedentary, desk-bound work. The nation's lower classes were largely assumed to be engaged in work that had some measure of physicality. Even if they weren't, many poor Americans were denied the leisure time, means, and space to exercise. For these same reasons, fitness developed a reputation as a white person's pursuit. YMCAs and YWCAs in predominantly Black communities, most wives were still segregated at mid-century, offered some Black Americans a safe space to move, and Black-owned magazines and newspapers began to advocate for exercise regimens in their lifestyle sections. As far back as the early 20th century, exercise offered some Black women a powerful feeling of physical pride that defied society's relentless message that Black bodies were less valuable than white bodies. In the early 20th century, the image of the overweight, unattractive, and putatively asexual mammy dominated media images, writes Ava Perkis in her study of Black women's fitness. Physically, the Black woman exercise enthusiast was in service to herself, whereas the mammy constantly served others, Perkis continues. She demonstrated that health, fitness, and beauty did not remain the exclusive domain of white women. And yet, whatever public and private resources were devoted to helping mid-century America become fit were almost exclusively devoted to white communities. It would be decades before this would begin to change. That's my guest, Danielle Friedman. She's reading from her book, Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. Um, And the Black woman who was behind uh, one of Jane Fonda's exercise partners in those videos and then went on to establish her own workout studio had a lot of problems trying to find success. In fact, she didn't. And she attributed that to uh, people just having a hard time reconciling that she as a Black woman could offer them uh, the same thing that, uh, not Jane Fonda per se, Mm -hmm. but but Mm -hmm. others like her. Now, what's interesting, if we fast forward at this point, that's changed in some ways. And uh, particularly when we think about a Jessamine Stanley, who Mm -hmm. is a yoga teacher and body advocate. This is a clip from Jessamine Stanley, yoga teacher and body advocate, who has gained recognition on social media after sharing photos of herself doing yoga as a, quote, plus size woman of color. The traditional yoga body stereotype is a white, affluent, slender woman. There's very little representation of larger body people, even people who are older, but ultimately those stereotypes are really irrelevant. And anyone who has ever struggled, anyone who has ever felt less than, can utilize this practice as a way to feel better on a day-to-day basis. 
So, Danielle, you've written uh, a lot about that in the book, which I definitely appreciated as an African-American woman. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But just so that the history is told and we understand, because women have such, as you've also written, um, weird feelings about their bodies and how they're supposed to look and what it Mm -hmm. means and all of that. So who who is is a symbol of that and, and what is all a part of the journey? I was really interested in sort of trying to get to the bottom of how, for women, fitness and the pursuit of, of you know, beauty became so intertwined. And I was, you know, my hope was that by exposing that history, women could sort of better understand the hidden forces that were and are at play and, and harness exercise in a way that's really more about joy and and mental health and and true strength but for so much of the 20th century you know i won't say starting with bonnie pruden but she is an early example my argument is that sort of the only way that exercise was really going to be embraced um, by this culture that was so skeptical of, of women's strength and threatened by it was if it was sold as a beauty tool to make women sort of more conventionally attractive, um, to help them lose weight and to help them shape their bodies in a way that was celebrated. So while women were always have been striving to be thin for a very long time throughout the decades as exercise became more popular for women, the ante was sort of upped. Um, It was no longer enough to just be thin. Women were striving to be toned and then by the late 80s to really be completely devoid of fat. So it's, it's a very complicated relationship, you know, and and I think as I write in my introduction, it's one of the reasons why for women fitness has been so, it's been both liberating and oppressive. And it is now thanks to the work of people like Jessamine and and a growing number of body inclusivity, body diversity advocates that that we are starting to untangle those forces and and expand our ideas of of what fitness can offer us and what a fit body looks like. Um, I appreciated everything that you've just said and how that sentiment rose up in 2019 after Peloton decided to uh, introduce an ad in which the husband gave a gift, <laughs> quote unquote, of a bike to his wife so that she could lose weight. Here's the infamous Peloton Christmas ad from 2019. <laughs> okay, you ready? Yes. Now. Peloton? Give it up for our first time riding. Right, first ride. I'm a little nervous, but excited. Let's do this. Five days in a row. You surprised? I am. 6 a.m. Yay. Rising with the sun. That was totally worth it. Let's go, Grace in Boston. 50 rides. She just said my name. A year ago, I didn't realize how much this would change me. Thank you. This holiday, give the gift of Peloton. Now, you and I are snickering because, boy, did that get pushed back. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to listen to. It is. <laughs> to be honest. It yeah. is. Because it's so crazy. And, you know, the, I think the the best overall response from many of the people who posted or called or ever otherwise responded to Peloton was, why didn't he get a bike and, <laughs> and lose Seriously. some weight? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. There was, you know, and I was deep in studying the history of women's fitness when that ad aired. And I was just like, oh, my God. You know, it, it, it felt it, it felt so retro. I recognized so many of the sort of um, 
you know, messages and forces that were at play. But I was like, this this feels in some ways, you know, right out of 1957. The fact that it did get so much pushback, you know, is is if nothing else encouraging. And and when there have been these retro feeling, you know, sort of sexist representations of fitness and fit bodies that have emerged on a large scale, it's, you know, I think it's it's become the norm that that they see that kind of pushback, which again, I'm I'm glad to see. Well, the other part of your story that I loved reading about are the various stories of women primarily who came up with answers to the clothing that mm. that other women needed mm-hmm. to wear so that they could exercise and and honestly as you read about the, the circumstances that the in the early days that women were finding themselves in uh, you know what were you going to do if you didn't have anything to exercise in it seems so simple now but no jog bra of course what are you going to do <laughs> you know exactly you're you're limited so those stories I thought were vital to the telling of this history, Danielle. Yes. Um, and to answer your question of, of what women did before the sports bra, women would often wear two bras to attempt to create some compression or a bra that was a size too small or no bra. I mean, and this, this, this quote solutions were just pretty terrible. And so Basically, uh, necessity became the mother of invention by the late 70s. By the late 70s, um, the country was in the midst of a fitness boom, thanks to a number of social shifts that had taken place, including the rise of the feminist movement and the passage of Title IX. Um, And so it gave birth to this to a, a, a class of women innovators and inventors and entrepreneurs who, who, like you said, came up with these solutions. The sports bra was invented in 1977 by a woman who had recently discovered jogging and loved everything about it, except for the fact that it made her breasts hurt. And um, she and her sister would joke that there should be a jock strap for women's breasts. But then she said, no, really? And uh, eventually she and two collaborators created the first prototype for the jog bra, which became the sports bra, um, from two jock straps. <laughs> and I love that the, story. Yeah. <laughs> housed in the Smithsonian now, by the way. <laughs> Forever enshrined in American history. Um, Danielle, we've talked, uh, your whole book um, is about the evolution of women's fitness and, and how we got to where we are now. Daily exercise, appreciation of a woman gaining strength and power, no issues around sweating, but still that underpinning of, you know, the beauty part of it is just going to be there. So where are we evolving to at this, this point? And, and do you think that the movement has changed overall in terms of who has access and is now the majority feeling more about a health perspective than a beauty perspective, understanding that the beauty perspective has never gone away. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's changing gradually and slowly. Um, certainly when you look back to where we were 70 years ago, it feels like there's been a dramatic shift. But I think we are we're at the beginning of what I hope will be the next major phase of women's fitness, where um, it is really about health and and just about feeling good. Um, I think one major thing that has changed is that for so much of the history that I document, there was sort of this one way conversation between 
women's magazines and pop culture and even many fitness professionals or, or fitness uh, advertisements and, and women where these major cultural forces told women, you know, how to look and, and set the standard for the ideal and women just attempted to meet those ideals. But for all of the negative aspects of social media and fitness, and there there are many, um, social media has also helped to create a, a two-way conversation so that the millions of women, majority of women who don't look like what's held up as a cultural beauty ideal have have a voice and can push back and can basically just call those ideals out for being harmful to women. And so social media and that that mindset has largely given rise to people like Jessamine Stanley and and that you know that growing number of present day crusaders who are advocating for both improving expanding access and opportunities and again just expanding our ideas of what what a fit body looks like and feels like well this is a great great history i'll be interested to see how uh as you've said this evolves and i thank you so much for joining me thank you so much for having me this has been so much fun Danielle Friedman is the author of Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. It's our March selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club, and it's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Vanessa Handy. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. 